and I'm going to read our scripture for our sermon. It comes from Luke 3 and Luke 4. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. And I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to, him, to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Thanks, Harry. Uh, good morning, Risen. Uh, it's good to see you all. It's been more than a year since we were last in this room. And uh, like, I don't even remember our launch service. <laughs> like, I'll be honest with you. It's been, it's been one heck of a year. Um, and so uh, I hope you're doing well. It's good to be worshiping with you all indoors again. Uh, so thankful for Harry and the Sunday Ops team, um, you know, who rolled out a transition plan and, and finally got us to this point. Um, where we could worship God more fully, you know, uh, without distractions, uh, together, and um, man, it, you know, it's been, it's been, it feels like we're relaunching almost, um, and uh, God has been faithful, right? God has been faithful, and um, we give him the glory, we give him the thanks. If this is your first time visiting us, welcome to our church. Um, you know, my prayer for you is that, that you meet God today, that he speaks to you, Right, that um, this isn't just something that you're doing, uh, you know, to 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 get someone off your back, <laughs> but that you realize you need Jesus, and, and He's here and He's for you, and and He wants to, He wants to give you Himself. Uh, right now, we're going through the Gospel of Luke, and today's passage it covers the temptation of Jesus. Um, it's it's like a weird supernatural passage, right? The devil and Jesus is having this intense argument. 
and, and they're going back and forth, and it has so much depth, so much layers to it. We're, we're never going to, we're not going to be able to fully unpack it today, that's for sure. I don't think we're going to be able to fully unpack it uh, until we get to heaven, to be honest. But the three things we are going to look at today is, one, the wilderness. We're going to take a look at the wilderness. Two, we're going to take a look at the three tests, the three temptations that Jesus goes through. And then lastly, we're going to take a look at the baptism of Christ. All right, so those are our three points. The first, the wilderness. Now, we didn't read this part, uh, but just before this passage in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, Luke tells us that Jesus begins his ministry at about the age of 30, right? So for about 29 to 30 years, Jesus is a carpenter, right? He's working with, with his hands. He's a contractor. And then he shifts from being a carpenter to being a rabbi, a teacher of God's word. And the first thing Jesus does in this new role is what? He goes into the wilderness. And that's kind of strange, isn't it? Why would he do this? Why would the first thing he do as a teacher of God's word, why would it be to go to the wilderness? Well, you know, when you read the Old Testament, uh, the understanding of the wilderness is of tremendous importance. You can't understand the Bible. You can't understand Jesus, who God is. You can't understand yourself, the Christian life, if you don't understand the significance of the wilderness, all right? And the most significant place we see this is when God frees the Israelites out of Egypt. He frees them out of Egypt, and where do they go? They go into the wilderness. Why do they go into the wilderness? Well, because that's the natural terrain from Egypt to the promised land. It's the wilderness. You see, the wilderness journey is such a big part of Israel's history. It's, it's a big part of your history. It's always referenced throughout Scripture. And in the book of Deuteronomy, God reveals to Israel the why for the wilderness. Right? We, we don't want to think about the wilderness. We want to run away from the wilderness. We can't wait to get out of the wilderness. We try to distract ourselves when we're in the wilderness. But God is saying, no, there is a big reason why you are in the wilderness. Why the wilderness is part of our lives. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, I have this behind this, behind us, behind me on the screen. Uh, before Moses dies, Israel's on the verge of entering the promised land. And so Moses tells Israel to never forget the wilderness journey. He says, You shall remember the whole journey that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. In other words, though the Israelites had experienced the grace and the power and love of God in their lives, as he, God frees them out of Egypt from slavery, their faith was still not yet mature. They still had all sorts of character issues, God still needed to test them and to grow them. And that, friends, can only happen in the wilderness. Amy Morin uh, is a psychologist and author who experienced some traumatic losses when she was a young woman. And uh, she's been interviewed many, many times. Maybe some of y'all have heard of her, read her books. Um, and in one of them, she's asked by her interviewer, after all that you've been through, Amy, how did you manage to stay positive? And how did you manage 
to stay the course. And Amy chuckles in this interview, and she says, well, I sure didn't always stay positive, right? <laughs> and then she says, but life will hit us all. Some of us, like me, are hit when we're young. Losing my mom and husband within three years of each other, I learned that life was fragile and that I had to live for something greater than survival or health. Or else I was always in tremendous dread and paralyzed with anxiety. Because everyone lives for something and life will constantly test what you're living for. So I've learned to live with deep purpose. I've learned to find meaning in loss, fail failures, and unmet expectations. There is always redemption. That's what I've learned. That's what keeps me going. Friends, what, what Amy calls life and uh, what hits us all, the Bible calls the wilderness. And friends, the, the wilderness will always test us in what we are ultimately living for. Health and life here. Uh, success. Comfort. Because if we're living for success, you see, uh, the wilderness will reveal that. Because if someone is doing well in their career, uh, maybe they're, they're well-liked and, and they're put together and they're, and they're accomplished and they seem successful, um, if you're living for that kind of success, then you'll find yourself getting jealous. You'll find yourself getting spiteful. You'll find yourself criticizing them, maybe in your mind, maybe to others. We'll constantly be living in envy and unhappiness because, because if we're living, living for success, there's always someone who has something that we don't have, you see? That's what happens when we live for our own, our own success. The wilderness will reveal what you're ultimately living for. When the going is good, it may seem like we're standing on solid ground, we're trusting God, but friends, it's only when the going gets tough that we begin to see in our own unhappiness what we are truly and ultimately living for. Let's take another example. If you're living for comfort, when things aren't going smoothly, we'll find ourselves crabby and complaining and moody and so frustrated with those we feel like is making our life less comfortable. You know, how, how does Rich know this? I'm like, this, I'm talking, because this is me, right? <laughs> like, I'm just like sharing, like, kind of like vomiting on you without you knowing it, okay? <laughs> but we're all human. We all struggle with the same things, you see? If we're living for comfort, the wilderness will reveal that. It'll, it will reveal that we are not living for others. We don't want to admit it, but it will reveal that we are living for ourselves. And so God is, is, taking Israel into the wilderness because he wants to test them. He wants to reveal this to them. He wants to strengthen them. Israel was constantly tested with their loyalty to God, their grace with each other in the tough times, their support for one another, their love for their neighbor. And if you read the Old Testament, if you read them, their story of the wilderness, you'll see that they constantly failed. They were always complaining and fighting with each other. They complained to God that they never had enough, that they weren't as powerful, they weren't as affluent as the other tribes. And even when they become powerful, 
God tells them, make sure you seek justice in the land. But what do they do? They plunder. They take gold and silver when they're not supposed to. And when God accuses them of, of using their power for selfish gain and not for justice, they, they justify the, their actions. They're, they're constantly fighting God on every single issue. You see, the wilderness revealed what Israel was ultimately living for, for comfort, for power, without any accountability, and, and it cut them off from the presence of God, from the voice of God. It dehumanized them, and it, it disintegrated them. Eventually, as we've seen and with John the Baptist, and we will see as we study the Gospel of Luke, Jesus comes and he calls them out calls them to repentance it's a rebuke but it's a gracious rebuke it's a saving rebuke and friends here's what this means for all of us inevitably we are all going to hit the wilderness we're all going to hit seasons in our life where what we live for will be tested but it's it's through this wilderness process like israel that god is is really trying to test what we're ultimately living for. Who rules your heart? Is it God or is it something or someone else? And it's in the wilderness process where we're so much in angst that God reveals to us how much we need to be freed from that. Let me, let me just dig in a little deeper here. <laughs> Salvation is about getting out. That's what the word means. You need to get out of something. You need to be saved from something, right? But it's not only about getting out of death. It's also about getting out of the power and rule of anything other than God that is ruling you. That's what it means to be saved. It's not just eternal freedom. It is a present and now spiritual freedom. And just like the Israelites, God's greatest purpose for us is, is first to save us by his grace through faith in Christ, but then also to work out that salvation, continually freeing us and saving us from the things that continually come back to enslave us. In other words, in the objective sense, salvation happens in an instant. You hear the gospel. It melts you. You experience God. You believe he's real. You're forgiven. You're saved. You're out of death and out of bondage. You've said, God, there is no hope without you. That's salvation. My health and my career, my marriage, my family, my joy, my purpose, it's all fragile. It's all fragile. I'm not the king. You're the king. I need you to save me. I need you to forgive me. I need you to rescue me. I need, to, I need you to help me live for you and carry me to heaven. That's, that's what salvation is. That's what happens when you are objectively saved. But in another sense, the salvation and freedom you believe in right there, it needs to be progressively worked out into the way you feel, Right? the way you actually live, the way you react to things and to people. And it's only through the wilderness experiences of our lives, the difficult periods, that the object, objective truth that you believe gets worked out. 
in every detail of your life. You can say, right, um, you know, uh, that you want to work out, that you believe working out is healthy. But that objective truth only gets worked out when you realize and you face the facts and how you live. Friends, the wilderness is, is not just a bad thing. It's a necessary thing. It's the only way that you and I, as broken human beings, can learn. It teaches us at the end of the day how much we still need Jesus. How much at the end of the day we need him, not only at the end of our lives, but every moment of our lives. It teaches us to live with a light grasp on this world and with a tight grasp on the resurrection. That's what the wilderness teaches us. We wish it wasn't, but there it is. Just living in this world, you're going to have wilderness experiences. Life is a wilderness to a great degree. But in the wilderness, God's purpose for us is to grow and to get freed from the things that we believe we are saved from. That's the purpose of the wilderness. Now let's take a look at this, the three tests of Jesus. Uh, once again, this is, this is a strange scene. You know, you have Jesus and then you have the devil and they're like arguing and, and, <laughs> and you're just like, why doesn't Jesus just like wipe him out, right? And, and, and so we need to think a little bit, you know, deeper here because it's strange that Jesus needs to be tested. Why is he being tempted? Isn't he perfect? Well, you know, tests are a fundamental part of life. You know, the DMV doesn't just hand out driving licenses, right? They test you, <laughs> okay? Uh, only if you pass the test do they give you a driver license to drive a car. Before you get hired, you get put through a gauntlet of tests. Don't matter your degrees. It don't matter your experience. They will test you before they give you any responsibility. Doctors are tested. Teachers are tested. Pastors are tested. And so in the same way, if Jesus is going to be the one true king who will lead the world towards justice and peace, he's going to need to pass some tests. Because every other king before Jesus served himself. They broke all kinds of moral and ethical codes. They disregarded justice and the weak and the powerless. So Jesus needs to be able to succeed where others have failed, where King Saul failed, King David and King Solomon. And so the Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness to test his character. To test his character whether or not he can lead God's people. That's what's happening here. And so Jesus hasn't eaten in 40 days, right? He's famished, he's fasting, he's weak. And the devil comes to him and says, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And so the first thing we see here is that the devil comes at us, friends, when we're weak. When your urge to give in is the strongest. He doesn't come to Jesus on day one. No, he comes to Jesus on day 40, when he's the most famished, when he's the most weak. Counselor Ed Welch says that temptation is the bait to choose the impulsive over the principle, right? We have principles that we want to live by, be patient. When we snap and we lose our temper, that's when we've given in to the impulsive. 
temptation is the bait to choose the impulsive over the principle. So friends, it's when you're stressed, it's when you're angry, it's when you're bored, it's when you're lonely, it's when you're lethargic that the impulsive becomes tempting. That's when temptation comes. So the devil is looking to break Jesus when he thinks Jesus is bending and he's weak. Jesus answers, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. It's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And that's pretty strange because, you know, if there was anyone who needed to live by bread alone, it's probably Jesus at this moment, right? On day 40, he hasn't eaten. But Jesus won't turn the stones to bread. Do you find that strange? What's so bad about that? Jesus, it's not, it's not a bad thing you should eat, right? What's the principle here? that Jesus is unwilling to break. You know, sometimes we think principal people are just too uptight. <laughs> just live a little. Come on, <laughs> right? Like, relax, relate. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But Jesus, he just, he's that guy, right? He won't break any of his principles. Well, in John chapter 4, the disciples are coming to Jesus, and they're urging him to break, uh, take a break from preaching, uh, to uh, take a break from healing people, to take a break from counseling them and, and teaching them, and, and to eat. You need to eat, Jesus. And then Jesus tells them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Okay, the disciples are confused, so they ask each other, has anyone brought him something to eat? <laughs> That's what they're thinking. Jesus saying, look, I have food that you don't know about. He's like, wait, what? Well, why didn't you share that with us, man? <laughs> like, we went into the village to get some food, and then, and then Jesus says to them, my food is to do the will of the Father who sent me and to accomplish his work. So the devil is suggesting to Jesus, just throw in the towel, right? Just... Why are you so consumed with doing God's work? End all this unnecessary adversity. Just take a break, man. It was a test of Jesus' determination and his commitment. And you see, Jesus has this principle that his main food is to do the will of the Father, to save as many people as he can with the gospel in the three years of his life. And so that test for him was more than just a test, right? Clayton Christensen, um, he was an author um, and professor at the Harvard Business School. He says, it is easier to keep your principles 100% of the time than to break it 1% of the time, right? And so Jesus is not a willing, he's not allowing himself to break his principles 1% of the time because once you do that, it's done. He's, right, like Clayton Christensen, it's easier to keep your convictions 100% of the time than to just break it here and there. You see, when Jesus was, was alive, he sacrificed all his time, all his energy, all his desires, and even his own life. And so he passes the test here as the king to live for his people, to go to spiritual war every single moment of his life for you, right? That, like this, that's what this test shows. He's not going to take a single moment off as he prays for you. He's not going to say, I'm sleeping right now. I'm tired. Don't pray to me. You know, pray to me tomorrow morning. No, whenever you need me, Jesus is saying, I'm going to be there for you. You can depend on me. That's our king. That's our God. That's the test he's passing here. It's his determination, his commitment to you. Now, in the second test, the devil says, 
all right, Jesus, I'm going to give all this authority and all its glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I'm going to give it to whom I will. It's mine, so I'm going to give it to you. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Now, we learn here also a little tactic about the devil. He doesn't just come to us when we're weak. Uh, He lies to us. He doesn't own the world. (laughs) Yeah, you don't own anything. God owns everything. He can't give it to whom he wills. Only God allows that. You know, in John chapter 8, Jesus calls the devil the father of lies. That's how he deceived Adam and Eve. That's how he deceives us. If you have this, you'll be happy. You're going to feel better by yourself. But the second thing we see about this temptation is that it's a test of Jesus' humility. And uh, we have to go to other places in the Bible to help us see what's happening here in this text. And in Mark chapter 10, Jesus' disciples, James and John, come to Jesus and they say to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask for you. Dang, right? (laughs) Right? I want you to do whatever I ask from you, Jesus. Man, and I thought I had it bad as a pastor. (laughs) And then Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? (laughs) He's like, okay, what do you want me to do for you? And then James and John say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your glory. Right? And Jesus called the, after he, <laughs> it's funny, he doesn't even respond. He calls the disciples over, he gets everyone over, and he says, we're going to have a little meeting. <laughs> and he says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the nations lord it over others, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. James and John, and maybe you and me sometimes, we think that Jesus and God is here to give us our kingdom of glory and our kingdom of comfort. And we say to God, I want to be there. That's where I want to go, God. So, I'm going to worship you, but at the end of the day, that's where I'm going. And the devil knows that this is how the world works. And so he's offering Jesus this. And the sin in us, if we're truly honest with ourselves, it it craves power, right? It craves comfort. Like, like, it's so easy to criticize the people above us. And so we, we're like, we want that power. We want the influence. We want the comfort. We want the glory. We don't want to share that praise. But, but what do we do with that power when we have it? Right? What do we do with that comfort when we have it? Now, maybe some of y'all have seen the movie Bruce Almighty. I think it's like a pretty old movie. Um, I don't even know anymore uh, how old it is. Maybe I'm, I'm definitely dating myself. Uh, it's really cheesy. Right, Jim Carrey, like I love him, but that just shows, like you know, like you know, I'm, I'm dating myself. But he's a newscaster in this movie who suffers, um, and he calls it. He says he suffers from constant uh, chronic bad luck, <laughs> right? And uh, Bruce reaches a breaking point when he's passed over for a promotion by his rival. Okay, and when Bruce finds out, he throws a profanity storm uh, at his workplace, and then he gets fired. Okay. <laughs> 
And so in this movie, Bruce is, after that, he's just like livid, and he takes it out on God, okay? He blames God, and then he tells God that he shouldn't be the one who's fired. God should be fired because he's doing his job so poorly, right? He says, you should be, I fire you. That's what he says, right? And then Morgan Freeman, who plays God, is pretty blasphemous, but he, he, he reveals himself to, uh, to Jim, and he says, hey, you know, you want my job? And Jim's like, yeah, give me your job. I'll take it, right? And he says, you think you could do a better job? So, so Jim takes this job. Now, what does he do with his new God-found powers? Does he do justice? Does he heal the broken? Does he help the powerless? No, the first thing Bruce does is he turns his beat-up car into this supercar, which I had to Google after I, like, zoomed in and saw what kind of car it was. It was a $500,000 car. <laughs> That's the first. He wakes up, he walks out, and he changes his car into this supercar. Next, guess what else? He gets his rival fired. <laughs> That's what he does. <laughs> and then if you've seen the movie, he does some other pretty shady things that would get, like, people arrested. Okay? <laughs> All right. You okay? Now, in this comedy satire, we, we see a glimpse of what we are prone to do with power. We're prone to put our interests before God's interests. But what we see here is, in this second test, Jesus, does, Jesus doesn't do that. He does what a person in power should do. It's beautiful. He uses it to perfectly serve others. Now, in the last temptation, this is the strangest one. Uh, the devil says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, God will command his angels to guard you, to protect you. And then Jesus answered the devil, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So somehow the devil is putting God to the test with this um, temptation. But, but how? Let's unpack that. How is this a test? Well, Daryl Bach, uh, he's one of the leading scholars on Luke, and he says, <clears throat> the devil is trying to test God's love for Jesus by asking God for unconditional acceptance of his requests. Um, the devil is trying to test God's love for Jesus by saying, hey, if he truly loves you, he will do this for you. But what does Jesus say? He says, I don't need to test God's love for me. <laughs> I know he loves me. I have it now. And I'm going to have that fullness in the resurrection. I'm amazed at this. Because, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, friends, you and I, we're constantly challenging, we're constantly testing God's love for us. We tell God, you need to do this for me now in this life. Or I'm taking the wheel now. We know how that goes, right? We end up getting lost. <laughs> In reality, we're saying, God, you're not enough. Eternity is not enough. What I have now, like your presence, that's not enough. We're always testing his wisdom and his, and his joy for us when we're looking for other things to give us joy. We're testing the reality of the resurrection. But Jesus doesn't. The union, this relationship with him and the Father, this trust between them is absolutely unbreakable. 
Now this brings us to the last point, the baptism of Christ. Now in baptism, right, uh, we saw when Harry read the beginning of our passage that Jesus comes to John to be baptized. Now don't you think that's strange, right? Because what does baptism represent? Baptism, the water doesn't do anything by itself, right? But as we place our faith in Jesus, our baptism represents the reality that we're forgiven, that we're made clean, like water makes us clean, that we're given new life by the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit applies this forgiveness into our hearts, and it applies the power and Spirit of God into our lives. That's what baptism represents. But why does Jesus get baptized then? He doesn't need any sin. He doesn't need to be cleansed. He passes all the tests in life. It's kind of strange. Some commentators say that Jesus does this to kind of show that he has solidarity with us. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know? It's like, oh, you know, like, hey, guys, like, you know, get baptized because I got baptized. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, no. But that's not what's happening here, okay? Jesus never does anything that doesn't have any principle behind it, you know? Later in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. That's what he says. He kind of puts a twist on baptism. He's describing baptism as something terrible. It's a distressing thing for him. Why is that? Well, water represents life, right? Without water, nothing on this earth will survive. But at the same time, the oceans are a destructive force. But water also represents death. So, friends, our baptism brings us life. But it's only because Jesus' baptism brings him death. That's why Jesus gets baptized. You see, our circumstantial wilderness in our life, it actually symbolizes a greater wilderness, right? The brokenness and sin in our life, it, it, it symbolizes a cosmic wilderness. This force this power and the end of, of sin, which is death. And none of us can make it out of this wilderness by ourselves. The only way we can be freed from this ultimate wilderness and its power now is if Jesus puts to death the wilderness of sin. And that is why Jesus' declarative baptism and tests are so important. Because Jesus, in our passage, is saying, I'm going to put, to put to death the wilderness of sin. I'm going to take on the baptism of sin. And in the wilderness, he tests that oath. He lives with absolute integrity and love and faithfulness. The power of sin couldn't even touch him never corrupt him. It couldn't break him. Up to the worst sin imaginable, crucifying the most loving person in the world, the most perfect person in the world, even in that moment Jesus didn't sin. He didn't allow that kind of power of sin to break him and to defeat him and to overcome him. Friends, that is how Jesus is victorious over sin. You know, we're always looking for leaders, aren't we? 
leaders who won't be broken and beaten by sin. And everyone fails but Jesus. And in him, we're also victorious. In the love of Christ and the cross of Christ, in his death, we have victory over death. And even now, if we believe and trust in him, we have access to the inbreaking resurrection power. Not fully, no, not perfectly, but truly. Graciously, forgivingly, faithfully, we have access to that power whenever we reach out to it. Not your past, not your sin, not your pride, not your stubbornness can prevent you, not even your disbelief. God can soften your heart in the midst of your disbelief to give you that resurrection power. And friends, the perfect king is here. So come to him and he will bear your burdens. Your burden is never big enough for Jesus to forgive and for Jesus to redeem. Come to him and he will lift up your heart and fill it up again with his grace, not with your works. And he will give you hope again because Jesus is the unbreakable one. Let's pray. Gracious God, sometimes, you know, when we step out of our world and we come into church on Sunday, we, we enter an entirely different world. Like we're so used to seeing and hearing stuff on social media and what life is about and how to counter those problems and how to approach life and so we, when we come here we need you to break through to us to some of the hardness and the layers that we've built up as we wander the wilderness alone and so father I pray and I cry out to you on behalf of our church that father you would come through on your word that you would show up when there are two or three gathered in your name. And through the weakness of a manger, through the weakness of being a carpenter, through the weakness of the cross, not in the glory of this world, Father, in the weakness and in the humility of your church, would you show up? Because that is when we are most on our knees crying out to you. So Father, speak to every single one of us the perfect message that you speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. And would you fill us up again and fill us with wonder and gratitude and joy and hope and love. We ask this in Jesus' name.